Missouri's first senatorial district is one of the most perennially competitive legislative districts in the entire state, and State Representative Doug Beck is trying to keep the seat in the Democratic fold. The Afton Democrat joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about how COVID-19 is changing how he's connecting with voters and the big issues that could define the competitive contest. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. I'm out here in beautiful Grasso Plaza in South St. Louis County with my special guest today. State Representative Doug Beck of the 92nd District. He is one of the candidates in the closely watched first state Senate district race. We will be having a similar episode with Republican David Lanahan uh, pretty much the day after this one drops. If you hear car noise in the background, it's because we're outside of a St. Louis bread co. We socially distanced. Are, we are socially distant. I did not really want to do this show indoors because, you know, I, I typically have been avoiding indoor restaurants. But thank you so much for joining me. We've been on the show before when you were kind of a newly elected state rep, but now you're you're gunning for the General Assembly's upper chamber. Why did you decide to run for this seat? That's a good question. I, I Anything I've done in whether it was run for the school board and, and served for nine years and run for state representative, I've simply done because I think I could uh, be an asset and, and be more of a community service to you know to my community here. I, I feel like I owe this area everything. I, I, it's been good to me, it's been good to my family, and I just want to give back, and I've been kind of doing that for a while now. I, I have a full-time job as a pipe fitter, but I've decided to give back, and, and uh, I, I believe that no matter how, how far you go or you think somebody thinks it's a higher office, I look at it as actually more responsibility to folks. And, and being more responsive to people around you. So, so this district includes a lot of unincorporated South St. Louis County, which is kind of swing area. Some areas like Oakville kind of lean toward the Republican side. Other places like LeMay are, are traditionally Democratic. It also includes like does it most of Webster Groves, all of Webster Groves? Yeah, Webster Groves. Uh, yeah, Webster Groves in its entirety is in it, and then part of Maple, Maplewood, uh, a lot of Crestwood. I don't know if the entire Crestwood's in it, but it's, it's quite a bit. Yeah, um, and a little bit of Kirkwood. Yeah, this used to be like a 50, before the redistricting in 2012. This was basically a 50-50 district. But including cities like Webster Groves kind of made it lean slightly Democratic, but it's always been a very competitive district. The race between Scott Sifton and Jim Lemke was one of the most competitive state Senate races I've ever seen. Um, what is kind of your strategy to keep this particular district, which is currently represented by Democratic, Scott, Democratic Senator Scott Sifton in the Democratic column? 
Well, first off, we're working hard. We're not taking anything for granted. Uh, I feel that it's the most, it is the most competitive Senate seat in the state. It's been that way for a long time. It's only been won by over 51% one time in the last 20 years, and that was in 2016. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of money was spent in this district to, to do that. So um, things have changed since then. We have different rules and, 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 and things of that nature. But we are going to work hard. We're, we're definitely out in the community as best we can possibly be during this uh, COVID time. That's been rough on us. Uh, my original game plan was to be uh, talking to people at their doors. I don't feel like that is actually a responsible thing to do when we're in COVID right now. Um, uh, that's just my opinion on that. And uh, we've taken different routes. We, we were talking to folks on the phone. We are, we are doing lit drops and we are talking to them in their yards when we get there. We're working super hard to, to keep this district. So the last time you were on the show, we were talking a lot about what's known as right to work, which is the term supporters use to describe a policy that would allow uh, workers in a bargaining unit uh, not to pay dues as a condition of employment. That issue has kind of faded after 2018 when voters repealed right to work. Are you getting a sense that that is a big issue when you're talking with voters or is it more COVID, the economy? And I ask this because this is a district with a lot of members of organized labor from, from what I recall from 2012 and 2016. Yeah, and right to work still is an issue, and workers' rights are, is still an issue in this area area and in, in our state. If we look at what has gone on over time, it, there's been a, uh, there's been a, from the majority Republican legislature and governor, there has been this tendency to overturn the will of the people. And I believe if, if things stay the same come the day after Election Day, that there will be some form of right to work back up there in the legislature they'll try to pass it and they'll and, the, and they'll try to get that whether it's by county whether whatever it whatever the case may be and any other worker right that they you know they took away minimum wage from the folks in the in, in the city and i fought against that and and right to work like you said i was out there on the front lines gathering signatures with quite a few other folks that were doing that and we beat that back you know 67 percent in this state but i but i do believe that they'll, they'll bring that up again it, it, it that's just the way it is you know and uh uh, it's the voice of workers, I think, more than anything else that scares folks. So, And just as a, 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 a disclosure that I, I will occasionally make, because I am an adjunct instructor at Washington University, I am a member of a labor union. Um, so I want to make sure that listeners know that for sure. transparency's sake. But if you were talking to somebody who, you know, didn't want to necessarily pay dues as a condition of employment, and they say, well, you know, right to work will, will lead to more economic development and more opportunities for businesses to locate here what would you say what would you say to them well that's just simply not true uh, we and we have a lot of states to look at to tell you that the poorest states in, in the union are right to work states they, they have the, some of the lowest uh, rates of uh, high, high school graduates their jobs pay less money standard of living is, is quite a bit less uh, even, and even goes into infant mortality and all these other things simply because they're a right to work state they're, the opportunities are not there to to better yourself to to to, to band together to be able to to get a wage that is you know uh, you know sufficient for, for, for what you do so that's it's really it's not a true statement when they say that you know you can get a lot of low-paying jobs uh, if you if you go into a right-to-work state uh, but that's that's not what's going to help help us here anyway why do you think that the issue will reemerge, especially after it was voted down so decisively in 2018 because you could 
make an argument if the Republicans saw that vote that just pursuing it again is kind of an electoral loser. Well, I, I'm, I, maybe I can just use recent history. We just did clean Missouri at 62 percent. And guess what's back on the ballot this time in November? They just brought it through the legislature and are trying to have the folk, people vote on it again and actually kind of confuse them. Uh, it's go from $5 gifts to zero in gifts and, and maybe confuse people to, uh, to get rid of clean. So I, I, I think that's right there. It's, it's been in the history of, of the way things have been done in this state. I, I, I almost want to say, I don't know if I want to say there's, there's a little bit of arrogance there. I don't know. But it's, it's something that, you know, that, that I feel like they think there's no penalty for what they've done. You know, there's no, if, if nobody loses their job, if nobody gets unelected, uh, they'll keep doing what they're doing, so. And Clean Missouri is a reference to a 2018 ballot initiative that not only included like cur curtailment of lobbyist gifts and making uh, legislative emails open under the Sunshine Law, but a pretty substantial revision to how state legislative redistricting work. Um, I imagine that you were a supporter of that initiative, by yep. the way. Can you explain why you thought that was a good idea to overhaul the state legislative redistricting system? Well, very simply, I don't believe that the Missouri legislature is, you know, representative of the actual people, whether it's by party, uh, whether it's by, you know, uh, area or whatever, that it's, it's not representative of what we are. I think we're a state that's probably maybe 55, 45 uh, Republic, 55 Republican, 45 Democratic. And if you look at, we're in super minorities in both the House, and it's, it's almost 67%, right? So th that is not reflective of what we are. And I think clean Missouri, and by the way, that was the number one thing on there was the redistricting. That was the first thing that was addressed in clean Missouri, whereas in this one, they tried to, to lower it down to, to make people think that that's not what they're voting on. Um, but, but it was criticized for emphasizing the lobbyist gift part in advertisements and playing down the redistricting part yeah. in advertisements, for sure. Yeah, and you're right. Put it on the ballot. It was the first thing on there. It was yes, redistricting. That's true. So uh, that's what I'm saying. It's not it wasn't the fourth thing down. So understood. Um, but yeah. And and the lobbyist gifts, I mean, you could go either way on those things. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I think all in all, it was a good it was a good proposal. Um, it, it has caused issue, issues sometimes trying to get financing and do some things for campaigns. Uh, you know, I've seen that happen, but uh, not really, because <laughs> you can still have people set up political action committees that can take on unlimited amounts of money. I mean, I have to push back against people that say that Clean Missouri did anything to curtail campaign donation limits in Missouri, because the initiative that passed in 2016 that did that is kind of a joke to be yeah, honest. Yeah. I'm not trying to be mean to the people that crafted it, but it's kind of a farce as far as like, you know, letting people set up packs to basically get around the limits at this point. And absolutely, independent expenditures have became become the name of the game here. But the, the problem, I guess, as a candidate is, is the money that comes into you, you can only control what's in your, right. in, in your campaign. You can't control any of that other. But going back to Clean, clean Missouri, yes. let's just say it's retained because there will be state legislative redistricting where a demographer will hold a lot of the power, not all the power. Um, and I think from talking with people that have been involved in the re state legislative redistricting process in the past, they feel like the outcome of the clean Missouri system will be districts that are narrower and that go east to west. We're not talking about going from like Chillicothe to St. Louis, but they may go from the city of St. Louis to West County. And some people would say that those districts don't wouldn't have anything to do with the, the, the 
landmass that it encompasses, unlike now where this is basically South St. Louis County and a couple surrounding areas. Are you comfortable with that possibility that you may represent a district that may have nothing to do with one another from one end of the district to the other, basically? I, I think we all have something to do with one another. And I think if when you have competitive elections, I think you get better elected people. I think you have better discussions. But when you have, uh, you know, a district that's 85 percent Democratic, I mean, what, what kind of elections are you having or, and what kind of debate are you having on ideas and things? When you have something that's closer, closer, I, I think you, you you get better representation and you get people that actually listen to you. Do you have any concerns, though, that in order to create more competitive districts in the St. Louis area, you would have to dilute largely black areas and spread out that population? I know that there is language in clean Missouri yeah. that would prevent, yeah. that aims to prevent that, but there's a yeah. lot of people that say you can't really have lots of competitive districts in the St. Louis area if you also have if you have a number of like Senate districts with large amounts of black people yeah. in them, basically. So, and, and then that's saying that folks are in a monolith of voting too. So I, right. I, I'm not sure about that, but, but I, I guess what I would say is I think you're going to have probably 12 to 15 more competitive districts than you have now mm -hmm. is what's going to happen out of this. You're still going to have some districts that are going to be predominantly uh, Republican and predominantly Democratic. And, and, and like you said, there's language in there to protect uh, folks from, from those things. And I think that's that needs to be done, you know, but also I, I th also think we need to have a representative uh, body up there. And we don't really truly have that right now. I'm like I, there's very few people that actually work for a living that serve in the legislature. And I'm one of those people that do that, you know, and that, that's to me is disturbing. We have a lot of people that are retired. We have a lot of people that got their, their millionaire money and uh, some other things and we and jobs that allow them to be able to do that. But there's not a lot of people that I'm going to date myself here that sign the back of the check <laughs> that work up there, you know, and, and, and that's part of what I'm saying. I think this will help with that Democrat, so to speak. What have, what have some voters been telling you about how uh, the governor and and the Missouri as a whole has been handling the COVID-19 crisis? Well, uh, by, by majority, and, and I can only do this by what we've, we've been talking on the phone to folks because we're not, again, we're not talking in person to them, which really hampers me to a lot because I, I, I usually get a lot of my information when you're going to somebody's door and you really know right away what the issues are going to be and, and what everybody's concerned about. But COVID is definitely way up there on the list. Yeah. That and crime are, are the two things in this district that we've we come to find. Uh, but what voters are saying, you know, they, they would love to have a mask mandate. They, the masks are, are very popular. And you're, are you in favor of that? I, I wish we did it as a state and, and we could have a discussion just on that. We have several hundred thousand people that come into St. Louis County and St. Louis City every day from other parts of the state that don't have these mask mandates. And people are bringing it, and the virus doesn't know boundary lines. And we have people coming in here and working and doing things and going back out. We also have people coming out of the county now and going into Jefferson County to go to a restaurant because they don't have to wear a mask. And then they're coming back into South County. And South County now is one of the hotspots for, for, for COVID. Uh, it's on the rise. So I think, you know, as a community, we, sh we should be looking to do that, to have a mask mandate. Any state that we've seen that has done that, the numbers have gone down. We're seventh now. We're seventh in the country now of the worst rise in COVID because nothing's being done on a state level. And it needs to, and quite frankly, it should be done on a national level too. And I don't know how you do a mask mandate on a national I level. I think like Joe Biden was at a forum 
the other day basically was like, I don't know if I can do a national mask mandate, but I would certainly encourage it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I don't know if it's a, you know constitutional or whatever, and that would be up to them. But something needs to happen because we're, the numbers are just rising and, and, and they're going forward. And I don't want to see all these. There's tens of thousands of deaths in this country now that are that shouldn't have ever happened. You know, I, I'm going to ask a similar question that I asked uh, Deb Lavender. I've been to places in rural Missouri where they don't have mask mandates. And I've seen people like eating at restaurants and walking down the street with no masks. And it kind of dawned on me, like, even if you had a statewide mask mandate, I really question whether you would be able to enforce it in places where health departments are small, cities are small, and they're far apart from one another. And there may not be the people that can actually like follow through on it. Even in a place like St. Louis County with a million people, I really have to question like whether there's like strict, strict enforcement of a mask mandate. So how do you actually like follow through with one? So one, I'm not really talking about walking around on the street, yeah. okay? What I'm saying is when you go indoors in a place, we put a lot of, here, here for example, uh, St. Charles businesses the other day came out and they're begging the county to put a mask mandate on because they're getting beat up over there because when they go in there and they require somebody to wear a mask yeah. for their employees and everybody else. So it, it would be, leadership would say, let's have a mask mandate when you go indoors in a building or whatever else, period. We had no shoes, no shirt, no service. We had that for years and no, nobody had a problem with that. I don't see what a, a cloth, a piece of cloth on your face is a problem. I really don't. I don't see where it's taking anybody's liberty away either. I. I think it's the proper thing to do, and and uh, you know that's one of the conversations you and I had when I first got up here. I said you want me to wear a mask the entire, you know, whatever. I think that's something we need to do, you know, and but I, I think it can be done. Uh, and you're right in the rural areas, some of these rural areas where the the population is is sparse and it's not so close together. But when you come together in a, in an in a, in a indoor space, and that's what we know is the breeding ground for this, and especially as as the weather gets colder, it's going to get worse. You know, you got the the ventilation systems just recirculate the virus, and it's it's something we can do. And, and I don't think it's that big. I mean, people sacrifice a lot more in the Great Depression and, and World War II than than putting a piece of cloth on their face. I think they would have probably been grateful if that's all they had to do. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Doug Beck. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Doug Beck, a Democrat from Afton. So you mentioned crime, and that's been an issue that like Republicans have been using derisively to attack other Democrats this cycle. And I'm sure it's going to happen to you, too. They've attacked uh, Nicole Galloway as part of like being funded by the liberal mob. They're attacking uh, Jill Shoup also, I, I would assume, for being, quote, soft on crime. And I, I would imagine, too, that that could come against you and Deb Lavender as well. What's kind of your philosophy on like how the state should be dealing with, with, with violent crime? Well, there's some things I, I think we should do preventative measures. What, what, we, what we could do preventively would be, you know, for one, uh, one, of, one of the issues that, it, that is near and dear to me is public education. I think we need to truly fund, fund our schools and, and get good education, no matter what zip code you, come, you, you, you live in. And, and whatever wraparound services that entails in order to get a kid a good education and be able to realize his full potential. That is the beginning of what I'm talking about. We also need to get jobs. We need to do development in areas that we see that are blighted within our cities and in North County and things like that. We need to put development in these areas. That, that will help stem some of this. And then also, we need to look at our gun laws. We need to look at the simple fact that, that if I had a handgun right now and I can sell it to you right now for, for money, 
and there is no paperwork and nothing that tra trans, you know, by that. And nobody knows you have that gun now. There's no background check. There's no, I think that's crazy that we can do that. A simple background check would be nice. It would be. It would also be nice to know that that gun is is, is changed hands. But there is no law in Missouri that says that, that that we have to do that. So those are just common sense things that I think we could do to to, to stop uh, violent crime. But we, you know, jobs uh, is, is the number one thing. We got to we have to have jobs. We also, uh, you know, have to have activities for for some of our youth to to do things after school. Some would say that the uh, focus on crime. Um, is needed because there's been a horrific murder rate in St. Louis and Kansas City, and there clearly needs to be something done about that. Sure. But it kind of has been the focus instead of this m protest movement that's arisen over police killing black people. Have you found that voters here, this is an overwhelmingly white state Senate district, uh, a lot of people that I found in South County do not support that movement for various reasons. Uh, do you think that there also needs to be laws put in place that if a police officer does something wrong, uh, that they're held accountable for it? So, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of our first responders. Let me say that right off the bat. I've been that my en entire four-year uh, career mm -hmm. and actually all, all my life. Um, and that, that includes firefighters, police, you know, uh, EMTs, all that stuff. But I will say that just like in any any other aspect or profession in life, there's some folks that, that do the wrong thing and they should be punished. They absolutely should be punished. I think the vast majority of our of our police officers are, are, are good people and they're in it for the right reasons. But sure, we should have, we, we, if you do something wrong, if you do like we've seen to George Floyd, I, there should be consequences for that, absolutely. And you should be no different than if I did something of that nature. It should be the same same. So when I'm talking about accountability measures, I don't know if it's like giving money for, for body cameras. I don't know if it's outside investigations when anybody, when a police officer kills somebody or uses deadly force. I don't know if it's mandating like a state mandate on sensitivity training or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But are some of those things, would those be things that you would support if they ever got to the forefront of the legislature? Because those have been ideas that have been floated for years, but have never yeah. made any traction, basically. Yeah, I would love to see everybody in the same room together, you know, our, our, our police officers, our legislators, our, our community leaders, uh, faith-based group, all these folks in the room together and, and have these discussions and see what we think would, would, would be the right thing to do. Is it body cameras? I think that would probably probably hold you a little bit more accountable. We've already seen that happening in St. Louis County, in the St. Louis City, I believe. I, I, did they implement it in the city? I think well, they're in kind of. They're in process, but yeah. I, I think that that is moving along, but the county has moved a lot faster yeah. on that issue. So, and, and actually, I think St. Louis County's been pretty responsive on a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I know the chokehold is not something we do here in St. Louis County, those kinds of things. So. And I know, for, and I know some. Uh, I've talked to some other officers, and they, they'd be welcome to these things too. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't want the the, the bad, the black eye on them, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I think, I think those conversations. I, I we we know what we do, but I think everybody has to be at the table when we make, when those decisions are made. So I, I remember the biggest issue in 2019 at the end of the session was a bill that uh, banned most abortions after eight weeks of pregnancy. And you were a pretty outspoken opponent of that. I think you spoke on the House floor against it. I think, or I might have spoken to you afterward. I did. And uh, talking to you how, uh, you know, how much you didn't like it. Now, 
I want to just make clear to our listeners that like Scott Sifton is also a supporter of abortion rights. So it's not unusual for an abortion rights supporter to represent this district, because if you go to Webster Groves, you're probably going to find a lot of quote unquote pro-choice people. But there's this there's some elements of this district that are strongly against abortion rights. And that's why people like Jim Lemke and Harry Kennedy were able to win when they were both against abortion rights. What have you heard from people on that issue? Is it even a big issue given all the other things going around right now? Or is it kind of like faded into the background since last year? I'm, I'm not sh- I don't know if it's faded into the background. I just, again, I haven't been able to talk to the to the folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as I would like to. I need to. to keep. I need to stop asking you what what, what people think. Yeah. But I, I imagine you're still talking with yes. people on the phone I, I, about stuff. But but I'll just tell you how I how I stand on. I, I believe that a women women should have the same same right I do is to make their own health care decisions, and that's how I look at this entire issue. When HB 126 came through, I thought that was just that uh, that would allow a 12 year old to be raped and would have no choice. They would have to have their rapist baby. Actually, I think the rapist has more rights than than that child would have uh, uh, that was raped and, and unfortunately had, you know, got pregnant. Um, and our incest. That Those are the things that, that was just went way too far for me. And I think that the rest of the, you know, this community would see that pretty much in that same vein. Maybe not exactly like I do, but I, I think that is just way too far. That if you remember Todd Aiken, uh, it's hard to forget <laughs> that, 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 even though that seems like 100 years ago. It was only eight years ago. Yeah. But but Todd Akin, and, and I'm not saying the rest of the, uh, everybody that's a Republican is this way, but the legislature is basically where Todd Akin was in 2012 when everybody thought he was way too extreme. And that's interesting to me. So You mentioned public schools. Um, I think one thing that may become a bigger issue if you're elected to the Senate is trying to expand charter schools. I'd like to hear your position on that issue, given that you were a former school board member and given that this could be something that you deal with next year uh, to try to expand charter schools. So a lot of people don't know this, but right now any school district in this entire state can open a charter school. They, if the board decides they want to do it, it would be controlled by their school board, which is duly elected by the people that live in that. They can open a charter school right now. That is state law, but it has to be, you know, you're, it has to be controlled by elected school board. I am not a fan of charter schools in the sense that they've taken place in the city. Uh, I've watched. We we look at if we look at the data, they they failed. Uh, they they usually perform worse than the public schools that they've taken the place of. I, I, I will be adamantly against charter schools. There's no accountability. Uh, they don't have a, a publicly elected body. If, if they change quite a few criteria to it, I may, I may listen to that. But right now, I think it just drains the resources away from our public schools, which are currently underfunded by the tune of, I'm gonna say 450 million, but I was just talking to uh, a school board member who used to be president of the uh, MSBA, the Missouri School Board Association, and he said it's more like $650 million. Mm. We have 70 school districts, well, when we go back to school, we have 70 school districts going four days a week. Not because it's good for kids to be in, in there for longer days, it's because they don't have the resources. Well, to play devil's advocate, if I was a parent in St. Louis City where there are a lot of charter mm-hmm. schools and I and I happen to live next to a non-charter school that isn't performing well, doesn't it give like the parents a choice about like where they want to send their kids? Like, why would you respond to that argument that it, it, it creates a more robust educational infrastructure in a place where there's been traditionally, traditionally uh, struggling public schools? 
I, I haven't seen them succeed. I haven't seen the charter schools succeed. There, there may be a, a one or two that have, have done well, but a, a lot of what we've seen in charter schools, uh, uh, they'll, they'll say that they don't recruit kids, but a lot of them recruit kids. And if, if we look at parents that are more invested in their child's future, maybe they send them to that school than rather than stay in another school. So you have a kid that has some resources behind him to begin with going into another school. And then you take those from from a public school and, and then you and you change the dynamics of things. Mm-hmm. I, I just I don't see it working. I, I haven't seen it work. I mean, the, the data doesn't show that it works. We've had numerous schools close. And then what happens to those kids? Mm-hmm. Oh, they get to go back to the public school. That's that's always the argument. Well, they can go back to the public school. So it's uh, it, we've had several, and then we've had had a lot of them closed because of uh, malfeasance and and some other things over the recent year. You know, the doctoring, uh, diploma mills, stuff stuff like that. So I, I I think if they had a publicly elected board, I would be inclined to maybe look at them. If they had the exact same accountability that a public school has, to where they can be unaccredited and all these other things, they can be shut down. I would, I, that would maybe, maybe have me look at them a little bit better. But they don't have those things. They just don't have them. And, and then there's also the recruiting aspect, which they not supposed to do, but we know that they do do it. Um, before we shift back into the campaign and how you're going to win, besides working hard, obviously, <laughs> you're, you were, I assume you were for the Medicaid expansion amendment. Um, and I think that now that it is the law of the land, so to speak, the next step is how to implement it. Um, and I would not be surprised that if you are elected to the Senate, Republicans may try to implement some sort of work requirement, either through statute or putting something else on the ballot because there's some trickiness about doing it by statute. Uh, this is a two-part question. What would you do as a legislator to, to implement Medicaid expansion and what's your thought on a work requirement uh, for Medicaid expansion? I don't, the, the work requirement I think is crazy. I mean, most of the, most of the the people that we know that are on Medicaid now are already do work, uh, you know, and, and with with this actually, it'll be it raises it up to 18. That so those folks will be working. These will be people that are working now. So it, it's already there. It, it, the work requirement I, I think is just it's it, it's silly. It's um, um, but you're right. They'll probably try to put that through. I, I'll be. I, I want them to implement it. I want them to actually do what the voters said to do and implement this into the state. And actually, we can do it. A lot of uh, a lot of the uh, talk was that it was going to cost the state millions and millions of dollars to do this. Actually, there's a fund now that currently has about 172 million dollars in it that we could take that first year's cost and put that in Medicaid, which they, they estimated about $60 million what, right now. What's the fund you're referring to? I can't to? think of the name of it, but it, it's there, and it's currently and it's funded. And I've, I've talked to some of the folks with the hospitals and other things, to, and, and this is, I can't think what the name of it is, but it's got like $172 million mm-hmm. in it. It's money that we, we barely ever, there, there's, a lot of people don't know this either, there's over $3 billion stuck in funds around this state that are just sitting there the money we can't use it's just sitting there that could be used for different things even if hypothetically you didn't tap into those funds couldn't you do other things like have managed care organizations tax themselves or tax vaping products or legalize marijuana and get tax there I'm, I'm not saying you need to say yes to any of those things but the, the question i always ask republicans about when they say it's too costly is 
Are there other ways to raise revenue to pay for this that wouldn't actually affect that many people, hypothetically? Yeah, absolutely. And they could roll back some of the tax breaks we gave to corporations and, and millionaires in the state and, and to pay for it. It, it, w it wouldn't take much to pay for it. But what I'm saying in this fund, they could we could pay for it and not, uh, not be a burden on taxes, not raise taxes. And then by the third year, we're turning, we're, we're going the other way with it. We're actually putting money back into compared to where we're at now because you're only paying 10% across the board instead of 35%. And it's just simple math. So as mentioned on the outset, this is a very competitive seat. You're running against uh, David Lanahan, who has never run for office before and does not have a voting record. Um, so that provides a little bit of a challenge for you because you can't say like, uh, your opponent voted badly on Bill X or Y, and he can for, for you. Um, how, why do you think that you're a better choice than him? Good question. Um, I truly think I feel like I fit in this district. I've been here my entire life. I've lived in what would be the first Senate district for my entire life, except for, uh, except for a brief stint of about four years when I lived in South St. Louis City. Mm. Uh, I've been here. I, uh, I I feel like I, I know the area. I know the people here. I I have their best interest when I when I go there and I and I pull the lever and I vote or push the button and vote. I have their best interest. I always think about what what will the folks back home, you know what what would they think or and how does this affect them? That that goes into every decision that I make. So I believe that this district here is is you know I, I definitely fit into it and it's a, it's a hard-working district it's a, it's a lot of good people in my mind and, and I feel like I really fit the district uh, so. not to be too literal but do you know if the part of st. Louis City was part of the old first Senate district uh, yes I believe it yeah actually I know it was because I um, yeah and I think it was Murphy or was it Scott I'm not sure who was uh, back then when I was living there I don't know. In if, the 80s. I, I actually, if you know where the Haven is at, my family used to own that tavern on Morganford. So. It probably was because, again, I mentioned Harry Kennedy. He was uh, he had been the committee man for the 14th Ward for many years. And I always thought it was probably the most impressive accomplishment I've ever seen in a legislative election that somebody from the city was able to win this district because <laughs> it was such a small part yeah. of this district. But that is a question for another day. Representative, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this important race. As I mentioned on the onset, we'll be talking with David Lanahan as well because we want to make sure voters get a good sense of who these candidates are. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you either on Twitter or what is your campaign website where people can learn more about you? Beckformo.com. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long.